This is a HeadGum Podcast. Hey, Andrew. Hi, Greg. You ever not know what book to read? Um, Rarely, because we schedule the show out pretty far, but I can imagine what it would be like, I think. Yeah, I think there are a lot of people out there listening who don't always know what book to read. And good news for them, this week's show is brought to you by Storymancers. Storymancers, that's my favorite Final Fantasy tactics class. Yes, and I think they (laughs) probably named their business after that. Uh, It is an (laughs) ebook subscription service run by fantasy fiction nerds for fantasy fiction nerds. Uh, Storymancers' mission is to ensure that you always have a great book at your fingertips. They find hidden gems and unappreciated masterpieces, and they work directly with authors to bring you great books at a discount. And when you sign up, you get three fantasy novels completely free. Three? Free! free. They should make that rhyme. That would be a good slogan. Three Three for free. Three for free! (laughs) And if you like them, you could just choose to stay subscribed, and you get three more books every month for just $7.49. For as long as you like. If you want more books to read and who doesn't, visit storymancers.com slash overdue and sign up for your free trial and get your three brilliant full-length fantasy novels absolutely free. That's storymancers.com slash overdue. Three books for free. podcast about the books you've been meaning to read my name is craig my name is andrew that's right it's spooktober i almost forgot everybody get your pumpkins out and listen sit down on your pumpkin and listen to our podcast put some headphones on your pumpkin and then put it on your head and listen Mm -hmm. to us through the pumpkin put your head into a pumpkin and then Drill ear holes. I guess drill the holes before. Okay, drill ear holes. Put your head in the pumpkin. Put the headphones over the the pumpkin ear holes and then listen to our podcast. It'll be much spookier and much more smelly. Yes. Because pumpkins do have a distinctive odor. We have also optimized this mp3 for pumpkin listening. Yeah, we mastered it for for pump to for to listen to on pumpkins. Usually we master it so you can hear it on that uh, Neil Young lossless music player that he did a few years ago, the Pono player. Um, for that and for that. for Zune. But this week we've mastered it for pumpkins. Great, which is perfect because it's the spookiest thing to put on your head. And Andrew read a spooky story this week. Andrew, what did you read? I read It's Time for Some Demon Theory, everybody. I read Demon Theory by Stephen Graham Jones. Great. Excellent. Um this is a book that was a Patreon recommendation from Jacob. Thank you, Jacob. Jacob said, I read a few books by Stephen Graham Jones in 2019 and liked a lot of his work. I really enjoyed his novel Demon Theory for the first two-thirds and then almost completely lost the plot for the last part. I lent my copy of the book to a friend to see what they thought of it, but after three months, they still haven't gotten through the first part because they don't like the writing style. I know some of others, some of Jones' other work is easier to find and can be easier to read if Demon Theory doesn't work, uh, but Demon Theory is the one that I kept thinking about for months after I finished it, and even more so the one that eventually compelled me to write all these words. Hmm. So... I can see why this book would do that. I can, I, I can see why the parts of it that did sort of gel for me would stick in my brain for a mm. while because it's it is it takes a weird enough path into your brain that it is sort of etched into your like synapses in a yes. in a different way than than a typical book and maybe it would compel you to write into two of your favorite charming right. podcast hosts to be like sort this out for me <laughs> and even and even when it doesn't work which i don't think it always does which we can we can talk about it does it is memorable <laughs> like i do i i have strong feelings about the book demon theory in a way that i don't always when i read one and i'm like eh that was fine okay you know well, that's good so we're going to yeah. buckle up for some strong andrew feelings um, feelings strap in there uh steam graham jones uh, his deal is like horror, sci-fi, weird, fic- capital W, weird fiction. 
Um, he was born in 1972 in Texas. He studied at Florida State. He has been teaching at UC Boulder for several years. He was awarded the Texas Institute of Letters an award from them. He was an NEA Fiction Fellow. I think he was shortlisted or won a Bram Stoker Award, and similarly with a Shirley Jackson Award. I, I found competing evidence on those two fronts. Just going down his resume here. Yeah. Um, we found his LinkedIn page, I guess. <laughs> his website is interesting. He's got like a bunch of different... This is demontheory.net. Um, he's got a bunch of different like sources of biographical information, some of which are a little more like, you know, some color, like colorful, like fanciful writing that he did. Some of them are links to like Reddit AMAs. Like there is... He himself is a mixed media experience <laughs> that you can go track down. I really enjoy a .NET domain name. Yeah. It's a, it's a very specific moment in time that says .com wasn't available, but they hadn't invented all the other top-level domains like .pizza and whatever yet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we went for .NET. That's almost, .NET, it's almost as good. Yeah. Um, his first novel, The Fast Red Road, was published in 2000, the year 2000, that is, and it deals the future. with, <laughs> deals with uh, the myth and pop culture portrayals of the American Indian and colonial myth making. He is a member of the Blackfoot tribe or nation in uh, out of West Texas and, and other parts of North America. Uh, and that is a big part of his writing. I did find some interviews where he said... For this novel specifically, like one of his rules was not to dive into Native American issues and themes. Yeah, I was going to say like get this pigeonholed after his yeah, earlier successes. This this seems much 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 more concerned with just like being of American popular culture, which mm. which means you know which means it's mostly coded white. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it is. You have to know a lot of stuff about like sci fi, fantasy, horror, fiction from the last, like, I don't know, from like the 70s on to get what this book is doing. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I did, I did not. I, I was, I guess, a little surprised that, that his background didn't play more into it. But I can totally see why he would, he would you know, not want to be pigeonholed in that way. And he's written a bunch of books and a bunch of stories, many of which do deal with those themes. So he, if you've seen his name in like on book, like literature websites or, you know, New York Times book review or anything recently, it might be because of his novel, The Only Good Indians, which is coming out this year, if it's not out already by the time you're listening to this, um, which is a horror novel uh, about folks growing up on the, on a Blackfeet reservation in Montana who are haunted by an elk hunting trip they took 10 years earlier. Um, <laughs> it evokes a menacing fertility goddess called the Deer Woman, uh, but it is also drawing inspiration from you know things like Jason from Friday the 13th. Right. Uh, and in, in an interview, this was an article uh, earlier this year about native authors uh indigenous writers in sci-fi and horror and fantasy and he, he this gets to him talking about slasher slasher fiction he says in the slasher story wrong is punished the intent is to rebalance the world and the world we live in is not like that so he has spoken in a number of interviews about the appeal of catharsis in slasher fiction and like justice in a way that doesn't exist in the real world um and this book is like, what is the story of how this book exists, Andrew? I don't know that there's like a big publication history, but like, what is this book from a, what is it? <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I don't know. I don't know the publication history. I don't know the the road to being a book that this took. But I can tell you format wise, this is a novel that is kind of written like a screenplay is written. Mm-hmm. So if you're like, I haven't read a lot of screenplays, but I did a little bit of research just to see how closely it was hewing to that. Um, If you are thinking it's sort of like reading a play that is really heavy on the stage direction. It's like they're they're, there. Screenplay is often really particular about 
how a shot is framed, like how long you hold on somebody's face. Like if you're hearing things from off screen or on screen, like it's not making all of the decisions that a director or an actor would make, but it is trying to create a, create a mood. And I guess put you in a cinematic frame of mind by giving you a lot of like extra flavor. And then you've got all the spoken lines and those are sort of formatted like they are in a play. Um, so demon theory is, is screenplay like in that you do get a lot of that, that flavored text, mm. but it is novel like in that you, it is not formatted. It is, it is not formatted literally in the way that a screenplay would be formatted. So it's, it's described as, you know, being written like a screenplay, but that only goes so far, I think. Yeah. So that what I, I went to a couple different web pages. I went to screencraft.org. Nice, I went nice. to nofilmschool.com and I <laughs> I went to multiple articles on Wait, what is nofilmschool.com's like MO? What are they trying to put out into the me, world just like don't go to film school? I guess we re- didn't we <laughs> okay. read a book called Don't Go to Grad School like something like that like a million years ago. Yeah. Now I will say that the top articles on nofilmschool.com right now are how the land before time made it okay for kids to cry again. And why was Adam Sandler worried he would ruin Punch Drunk Love? So I'm not really sure. (laughs) I mean, I wouldn't go to film school to learn either of those two things. So Um, maybe they just know their audience. And I also spent time on Masterclass.com. You may have seen some YouTube ads for Masterclass where celebrities teach you how to do things that celebrities know how to do. I have seen that. Yes. Um, And what I really tried to drill down was the difference between... Uh, a screenplay and like a film treatment. Um, you know, screenplay being a thing that you might uh, write and then give over to a director and cinematographer to actually make a film out of. Uh, a film treatment uh, might be a thing that you would write in maybe 10 to 12 pages. That's a mix of prose and screenplay you know, techniques where you are setting up the world you want the reader to envision, you're laying out the structure, you're identifying key characters, key scenes. You might have like a, a breakdown of the narrative arc, but you're not actually writing out every individual scene. You're not writing like all dialogue of the dialogue. dialogue in every single char- character yeah. and all that stuff. You okay. might have like, oh, well, I bet it would be sick for the hero to say this in scene three, but like you don't need to write <laughs> every single thing. So a film treatment is when you wake up with a really good idea and you just got to get it on paper and sell it as fast as you can. Correct. You got you to get it to the big muckety mucks. Yes. Where I don't know anybody who's running any movie companies anymore because they all got me too so so i don't know anymore um but the that's fine i'm not complaining (laughs) masterclass.com also said like what shouldn't be in your actual screenplay um are overly elaborate scene descriptions too many parenthetical like emotions or vibes to characters too many transitions or camera angles because you that will be decided by the director or the like script doctor that might get hired to like turn your idea into a movie. Love that band. Um, I script, yes, script, a lot of good songs doctors. by the script doctors. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I guess like all of this to say that this is an interesting, interestingly formatted book. The reviews that I could find all cited also House of Leaves, which we talked about a few years ago, which is its own like kooky mixed media experience yeah like a a weird horror format bending touchstone and i I think yeah what you said earlier like modern horror can't escape the like 70s and on film horror genre like it just it's all it's going to become self-referential you know, well, that, I mean that's true of a lot of a yeah, lot that's of true. That's a good point. fiction. Like it's all it's all building on and in conversation with things that have happened in the past. But it, but in horror, it gets really explicit. Like they they've built a whole separate genre of zombie movie based on like what if the they were fast instead of slow. Like they took one <laughs> core thing about zombies and changed it, and now they they like forked zombie movies. And yeah. it's its whole separate thing. Now. That's a good point. Yeah. Um, so we we can talk a little bit more about like maybe slasher films and and other our own experiences with horror movies and as much as we have them. But why don't you tell me 
what exists in this book from a story perspective so that we have a good foundation. Okay, so this is split up into three chapters, and each chapter is sold as its own. This is a screenplay for its own movie. Oh. So every every chapter begins with... this is a, a quote from the book, a three part novelization of the feature film trilogy, The Devil Inside, as adapted from D, the unauthorized bestseller inspired by the case notes of Dr. Nieder, as recorded in a series of interviews conducted during his residency at Owl Creek Mental Facilities and originally published in the journal PQ as narrative media and allocution genre as mnemonic device. Sure. So it is a well, it's a it's a write-up of a it's a novelization of a film trilogy adapted by a possibly non-fiction account of some stuff that some doctor got from a mental facility love it perfect (laughs) well and this is a thing that happens in horror movies all the time it's like it's found footage yeah yeah, this is this is a true story or or is it the names were changed to protect the haunted (laughs) um that happens all the time. Classic stuff. So it's, it is a think like fr- franchise horror films. Like once you get to like the fifth saw movie mm, or okay. like the fifth purge movie, like any, any movie that makes it <laughs> sufficiently far out from its original premise and just becomes like its own institution. I think like Halloween is the, you the, and I were big, talking like, thing, last but. week about how like the 10th Jason movie is Jason X and he's in space. Yeah. And I, I don't know if it was you or Susanna Jason, who was so like, how'd J- he get to space? It was like, he, I think he's just in <laughs> space in this one. I had heard Jason X is a is a separate series that they split off of the main Jason series when they had to move the franchise to the Super Nintendo. Yeah, that's true. Mm-hmm. Um, and Doctor Light was just a recording in that one. Yeah, right. And he was just in capsules, and he gave Jason special upgrades to help him kill people better. I guess. That, wait, so I do want to like let's oh, put and Jason a, can wall jump in that. Let's one put a pin in that trope. Um, if we get there as the like the villain protagonist, okay, sure. Uh, just like I want to put that out there because that is a thing that happens in multiple horror genres. You, you and you definitely get a, a taste of that here. You get a taste of a lot of different slasher film tropes. Great. Um, sorry, sorry. So, so this is a, a film, a fictional film trilogy based on fictional people, but maybe it's like through a nonfiction lens. Go. Yeah. So. Um, I'll, I will open with saying characters in this don't matter. So we're not going to do a lot of discussion of there. There is one core thing and it is like, I think if you were going to compare it to something, it would be like, why does the creepy ring girl exist? Like there's yeah. one like core thing that happened that made something haunted. And now they made like a million movies based out based on that one thing that happened. Yeah. So the only character thing that matters, even one little tiny bit is there is this family of four people, a mom and dad and an older brother and a younger sister. The brother and sister are in a three wheeler accident where the younger sister like becomes paralyzed. And then, um, the dad like comes and kills her or does he <laughs> cool and <laughs> it's and and it sort of it, and it sort of, so both the, both the dad and the girl are the most haunted in this scenario is like the, the dad <laughs> has become some kind of like angel of death basically and the girl has become a creepy ring girl okay cool yeah. That sounds good to me. And so that that is set up like all the supernatural and weird stuff that is happening. So in part part one of the book, some uh, medical students, some of whom are sexy co-eds, there's one girl who's repeatedly just talked about in terms of like the bra that she's wearing because she, she, her just boobies are out all the time. <laughs> so that's some slasher film stuff. Yep. Um, and some medical students go to help a friend whose mother has like gone missing uh, they go to like a creepy country house they get trapped in a snowstorm it's halloween uh they gotta wait out the night a bunch of them get murdered pretty typical stuff how does it do the like murdering is it creative is it 
goofy. It is mostly like people do a dumb thing that separates them from the group and they get killed. Yeah, sure. That's the main thing. Is there a, and like the killings are not like, did you not find them unique at all? Like they're just people getting offed. I mean, you just, you suddenly shift into, and this is what this is one of the the screenplay y things. I, I'm I'm gonna save my criticism for the end because I know I'm. It's I, very I, generous I have, of you. Well, I mean, I have the I have a reputation as the one who hates everything, <laughs> and that's not that's not true. I was extremely frustrated about halfway through this, and I've written all my reasons out, and I think I've articulated them pretty clearly. I do want to talk about the stuff that will stick with me and the stuff that. I think okay. per, like people who enjoy this book, the the stuff that they enjoy, I want to kind of focus on that sure. first. Um, cause, and it didn't, it, it didn't all not work on me on, on balance. I found this kind of frustrating and I probably would have quit halfway through if I hadn't been reading it for the show, but let's continue. Yeah. On. So my, my question was like, what are, what is the style of slasher death? I suppose. You, so it, it uh, Jones switches you suddenly to a no, another point of view. You're looking out of the monster's eyes, which mm. is a, a thing that has a lot of um, a lot of history in this in this sort of thing. Um, like if you think about it, made, it made me think about, especially in part two, um, what it's like to see through like the Terminator's eyes or the or the Predator's yes. eyes. There's like a specific kind of overlay that lets you know where you are. You know what my favorite example is? Was that the snake vision from Snakes on a Plane? <laughs> Isn't that just a camera like on the floor? Yeah, like, slithering around. It's like a green tinted camera on the floor. It's my favorite example of this trope. <laughs> but you you've suddenly switched into like an overhead. POV and this this thing swoops down and picks people off one at a time. Okay. Um, and the one of the sexy co-eds is the brother in this family of of uh, you know troubled people. And sure. They have gone to his mother's house. Yeah. Okay. So that that's how you get into the family dynamic of it. Okay. Cool. 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 Uh, so pretty much everybody gets murdered in that one. Pretty much. Um, and then so part two. <laughs> is the the high level top line summary. So the first one took place on Halloween. This one is mostly takes place on Christmas. I have demon alien baby rampages at local hospital. <laughs> Heck yeah. So it is this this one gets into a little bit of like zombie slash like I, I think it's mainly zombie is like people can get infected with a thing and then they go all monstery. Okay. Um, there are also elements, I think, of like alien style, like body horror slash like being taken over f- f- from the inside by yeah. like a demonic presence. Cool. Um, this one is is on a larger scale and a lot gorier and part. So you okay? What what happens? And this is where the book lost me for a while. Is some a couple of people in part one get killed like pretty early on, like relatively early on, like maybe halfway. Okay. And then at the end, those like two of those characters show up in an ambulance to pick up Hale, who is the the older brother in the in the family that I talked about. Um because they finally like made it through the snowstorm. And then you go to this hospital and like a bunch of characters who you did definitely see get killed are sort of up and about. Ooh. They don't, and they aren't always the same like people that they were before. Like one of the, one of the medical students is like a custodian now. Um, and this is part of what I found frustrating about this, this book was it, it, it is very like twisty. It is, it is sort of maximally disorienting and, and confusing a lot of, a lot of the time. And, and the bridge between chapters one and two where this stuff is happening and you don't know who's alive or who's dead or what characters matter and, and, and who doesn't. It's very, it, it was really rough for me. And if I hadn't been reading it for the show, like I said, I probably would have put the book down at that point. I think I have a lot of like very frustrated Slack messages <laughs> uh-huh. that I sent to you. Uh, you did. What, circa like 9.30 a.m. today. That that corresponds to <laughs> where you were. Where I was in the book at the, at the time. time. <laughs> well, and I think but, that but is But what a... you, like you... I, I, 
you lose a sense of what is what is real and what is permanent and what you should be paying attention to. And the book, even like even though I got sort of acclimated to it, it does sort of explain what it's doing in a way that I found interesting, Can if I not ask, always is, like is super compelling. A- is that a thing that you generally dislike in stories, any regardless of medium, or do you think that is a thing you dislike when you're reading books for the show? That I mean, level of disorientation. It is. It's definitely not something I I like in the context of the show because I'm usually reading with some time pressure and I can, I just don't have the space to put to put something down and walk away from it or like put it down. Yeah, sure. And read other stuff about it and then pick it back up. Um, because yeah, like as as a reader, it just makes me sort of check out to have to work that hard, sure, mm-hmm. to understand what's going on. And and, and I don't want to say that I'm not a fan of like complicated things, but I I think if I was going to pick a TV show, just like thinking off the top of my head, that makes me feel this way. It is the uh, Benedict Cumberbatch uh, Sherlock sure. series, and the specific thing about that series is that it's continually like getting to the end of the episode and being like, actually, you dumb idiot, everything that you thought you understood about this story and these characters and everything that's happened is wrong, and here's why. And Benedict Cumberbatch is going to run down the whole list of things in a way that is meant to make you feel like an idiot because you have to feel like an idiot for him to feel as smart as he needs to feel for any of this to work. (laughs) And so it's just like a, it is a continual... like pulling the rug out from under the the experiencer of the story that I find frustrating and it, it makes me it makes it really really hard to care about literally anything because you don't know what to care about yeah yeah well like you'd see oh this story is setting up these stakes and these stakes but because I know that this this book this movie this show this whatever revels in <laughs> twists and making things ultimately not matter and making minor things suddenly become the most important thing like why why check in mm. at all why not just wait until I get the Wikipedia summary at the end yeah, of the episode fair enough. you know what I mean yeah and I I know that there are people who actually their primary a way that they like to experience horror movies is to read the Wikipedia first to like (laughs) find out what the twists are to get a sense of how it's going to go. And then you can like watch the, you can get the jump scares if you want the jump scares, but then you're not like waiting for the twist. I'm also thinking about, um, we were just watching the HBO Watchmen series today and there are elements of that show like this other, your first time through, or are you? Really uh, it was it? Laura's first time through. Okay, um, okay, cool, cool, cool. And there are elements, especially in the back half of that season, that are like individual episodes play with a like you didn't know what's going on here, and we are deliberately keeping information from you. But there's like an emotional arc within an episode that will at least get you to the end of the hour, and yeah. then you also have the intervening week, usually with these shows, where you can be like, wait. Who? What was happening? Yeah, where you like think about it, or think about it, or talk about it, or maybe even for some stuff like watch it again. Yeah, and I just think that like especially the way we read them for the show, but I also think that inherently a lot of you know novel reading is uh, solitary while you're inside the book. You know, Um, it can be strange to to be in that like what is going on space. I certainly felt that way in, in House of Leaves, where I was just like. This book is literally haunting me while I'm reading it, and I like I can't. Go, where can I go to unpack this until I'm done? I'm trapped in the book until I it's lose, over. Uh, I definitely I lose patience when it feels like a a book is disrespecting my time <laughs> or like actively <laughs> mocking me for trying to participate in it. You know what I mean? Sure. And the show like exacerbates that, but it is not it is not something I dislike specifically because of the way that we read stuff for the show yeah fair enough that's what i kind of i just wanted to like drill down on that yeah yeah if anything the show like helps because i wouldn't have spent this much time trying to ferret out (laughs) the stuff i didn't like and the stuff i did like and like why for each if i didn't have to talk about it for ten thousand people for an hour you know yeah it's reasonable um so, so tell me about the transition from the first 
third to the second third, which is where you started to articulate this like, wait, what's happening here? Woo. Well, so, yeah, so like midway through, the characters themselves realize that they are in a story, kind of. Mm-hmm. Like they 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 recognize, oh wait, didn't I die or didn't you die? Like wasn't I somebody else in this other thing? And that that gave it a hook that okay. I finally could could sort of glom onto. And then in like so the I don't I don't always think that the I don't always think that the cinematic slash like screenplay thing is effective. I'm gonna get into that more fully later, but the most effective part of that did happen in this chapter where so you so you've got this like this this old woman is wheeled into the hospital and she like gives birth to this like awful thing with this like corrosive blood and it and something like hatches out of the thing that like came out of her and goes up into the vents and like becomes it becomes a monster it becomes monstrous and somebody uh kills this monster i believe like electrocutes it and one of the characters ha- is talking about the way that like naked mole rat colonies work. I-, I didn't, and I didn't fact check this. I assume that Stephen Graham Jones is not lying to me about like urban legends about how naked mole rats work. But if like the queen in a colony of naked mole rats, according to this, sure gets gets killed, some random naked mole rat will just like become the queen and even like take on different like physical characteristics and stuff like like the the nature life finds a way yeah allegedly like balance itself out somebody even makes a reference to like a jurassic park of course velociraptors and there's no male one and so they need to okay okay yeah um but while this character is delivering this monologue about how naked mole rats work this totally random minor character somewhere else in the hospital, like suddenly becomes the monster because the monster got killed. Uh. And so there's, it's this like juxtaposition of, okay, now we're hearing this, this guy do this voiceover as this person like turns to a guy and reaches in and like rips his heart out and eats it. (laughs) That's cool. That's a thing thing that books don't do as well is the juxtaposition of, two different scenes I like that is a thing that works in an audio visual format way better than just like sequentially reading it on the page like you imagine well, yeah. one thing happening while thematically relevant but you know different text is being said out loud or something like that okay cool 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 um so that that is part two is demon demon alien baby and that's the and, one where like people are becoming the monster. Yeah, like th- there is a literal like alien esque sort of. I, it's not quite alieny because aliens use your body as like a, a host. They, they gestate in there yeah. and then they pop out and then they're their own thing. But this is like somebody's skin is like falling off and and then they. All right, like a demon under there now. Love it, perfect. <laughs> Did, is there um just a quick question before we move into the third section? Are there callbacks to the original like trauma in the first installment? Like, all the time. Okay, all just the make time. sure. And in fact, Stephen Graham Jones makes sure that we know who <laughs> in the sequel has been cast as the same oh, actor. From the original, and even he says the phrase "from the original" a lot of times. I so love that it. We know, so that we're real. So we know that we get when it when we're supposed to be paying attention to the fact that it's a sequel. Uh, part three is it, it amps up the meta ness that takes root in part two. Many of the characters from part one, having become unkilled in part two, return to the original house from part one to like do it right and to fix things. Okay. And are more aware of their place, like within a narrative structure and a universe that makes use of tropes and things. It, that one sentence summary makes it sound a lot easier to follow. than it is. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Are there, does the, 
uh, aside from the meta-ness, has the style of horror movie changed that much? Or is it more a revisiting of the first with the knowledge gained from the second? It's more in much the way that a lot of those like 70s and 80s movies had to keep upping the ante. Like If you think about the move from Terminator to Terminator 2 or the move from Alien to Aliens, they moved from being more like solo and contemplative almost. Yep. Yep. To a big action movie being like more, yeah. Being more like focused on action set pieces. So, so it's part three. Part two is definitely like more focused on action set pieces. Part three is, is doing some of that as well. I don't, but I, but I don't know if it, it doesn't map all the way. And I, I'm not enough of a student of this genre. I guess, I guess to know, because I, I feel like for any genre horror film, you don't want to introduce like a like an air of finality to anything because you want to actually keep making the thing for as long as they are profitable. Yeah. So that, <laughs> but it's but it's melding elements of like part one and part two while creating an off ramp for the story to end. I guess. If that yeah, that gets to the that villain protagonist thing I alluded to earlier, which I think the two best examples are Friday the Thirteenth. And Nightmare on Elm Street, and even Halloween, and I Godzilla, guess. also. Well, God, yeah, that's true. I love Godzilla, though. <laughs> I'm not even going to bring him into He this. started as a metaphor for the nuclear bomb, and then he became, became a lovable, a friendly lizard. lizard who protected Japan from <laughs> giant puppets. So strange. <laughs> but you've got Michael Myers, you've got Jason, you've got Freddy Krueger, and like in all of the sequels to those movies the characters that are not the monster like don't persist or if they do persist it's not in every installment and like fans of that of those franchises are showing up to see what that monster will do in the next movie or like the leprechaun series let's you know, I, I don't think that is as well regarded but you know or, yeah, or like, child's play I, I, with we, chucky and things like that for for whatever reason we were going down a wikipedia <laughs> hole on the on the leprechaun series recently and yeah i feel like so the the protagonist and and this persisted to some extent in like the scream movies too which i know you wanted to talk about I a did. little bit in in terms of like horror like send up and pastiche that mm-hmm. also mm-hmm. was trying to participate in the genre that it was sending up. But um, yeah, like the, the, the people who are being terrorized usually by like the third or fourth movie have fallen off. If but that the villain, but yeah, but the villain were, will persist for longer than that. Yeah. So um, I was reading a little bit about this, like scream is actually a good example uh, in like the, the late nineties, mid to late nineties, they start like playing with the genre. There's people in Scream who are experts on horror movies. There's a whole scene where they like narrate watching Halloween. Yeah, that's and, a, that's a whole horror movie thing too. Is you have to decide early on. Okay, do in har- my zombie movie. Do the people know about zombie movies? Yes. Or not? <laughs> uh-huh. um, yeah. And and that series is one that kind of stands out as. The protagonist, played by Nev Campbell, persists between movies, and the villain is different in every movie, even though they always wear that stupid mask. Uh, contrast that <laughs> with, like, again, Friday the 13th or Nightmare on Elm Street, both of which the monster persisted so much that there was a movie that's just Freddy versus Jason, where they just fight each other. <laughs> Whoever wins, we lose. Yeah, and so, like... And in Child's Play, you've got Chucky, you've got Bride of Chucky. Like, you got to put Chucky in your Child's Play movie. You don't have to put the first kid from the first Child's Play in your next Child's Play movie. Um, does the and, then the and then there was the famous film Chucky versus Kevin McAllister. <laughs> <laughs> how, does the, um, how does the villain per- or the monster persist across these movies? Is the monster dealt, uh, dealt with at the end of the third installment? So... The monster in the first one, more or less, is is the dad. Okay. And the but but something in that like father daughter family dynamic has caused some like greater rift to open up in like space and time that has invited bigger worse demons in. Yeah. Um, so that, that, that feels like 
that so in part two it's all about the demons but but they are it's all tied up in this family and like the demon originally looks like uh jenny the the sister who was in the the three-wheeler accident and then blah 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 Mm. um and then so in part three you do get a face turn from the dad who was ostensibly the murderer in part one go go godzilla where he is sort of acting paternally toward his son who is still alive and trying to send back the demons because you, you, you know, they are the bigger bad, I guess. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense to me. That, 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 that is that a, answer your question. Yeah, that like, does. Cause that also, that maps to, I don't know that I can name it specifically, but that does seem to be like a, a tropey arc of like your villain in the first movie, even the Terminator actually is is a decent comparison there. Where like he's the bad guy in the first movie, then he is sort of your like you know hero companion character in the second movie because wait for it, the world he came from is more evil than he is. So now you well, need him. This happens all over the place all the time and it is what happens when your villain becomes the breakout star of the thing like Darth if Vader, you are yeah. mm-hmm. if you are a like a buffy fan think about oh. spike's arc where he is introduced as a, a big bad of a whole season and then later he is like not only a reluctant hero but also like a love interest yes. for the protagonist yes laura just watched, because people like that character so much laura yeah. just watched all of the vampire diaries which is like seven or eight mm. seasons of that cw show and every sixth episode that i caught someone who was a villain was now a protagonist like it was yes. just yeah, the, yeah, yeah. the natural cycle of a hot vampire that is first evil is now like a fan favorite, so you got to give them a plot line where they're a good person. Yeah, I mean, I try not to bring up Prince Zuko too much on this sure. podcast. Like, I think once every like eight or nine episodes is a, is a good <laughs> rate at which to bring up Prince Zuko from Avatar: The Last Airbender. Of course, but also popular villain who got a face turn. Yeah, love it. Um, so what do you want to move to next? Do you, I feel like we've got a good sense of the arc do you want to talk about the any more about the screenplay or do you want to move into some of your like this didn't work for me stuff i think i just want to talk about what really steamed my beans about reading this book okay you know? so let <laughs> like, me just let me what, just shout what did out. not work I've, do I've, anything yeah do anything else you want to do before we get into that because i think stuff that didn't work will be the is, is a natural like closing point for okay the episode. So, um yeah. so i found uh there's a review on dreadcentral.com a lot of like kind of like people who have <laughs> blogs and websites about horror fiction. This was not a mainstream, you know, New York Times book review reviewed book. No, that like I could Dread find. Central is definitely the name of like an Angel Fire website. I love that it. Later upgraded to a real domain. So, um, yeah. So what makes Demon Theory different, this writer says, plenty. Think of recent horror movies so full of self-aware dialogue and pop culture references that they drew groans from half the crowd and puzzled looked from the other. Uh, Where this differs is that it serves as a sort of primer for anyone who didn't get the references. And then the rest of this review goes on to talk a lot about the footnotes in this book, which I think are on your list. Um, Number two. Which this writer writer says is like, it is interesting and it is useful and exciting if you're into it, um, but can also be a bit of an obstacle to enjoying the book at speed. Um, The turned brain dot blogspot.com review that i found from 2011 um found it a little wanting comparing it to something like house of leaves thought it that it underexplored the core premise of the gimmick as it were um as a as a an analysis of a fictional horror movie series like thought that it could have gone a little bit further um and i found some goodreads reviews wait how many stars do they have uh, two of them have three, and one of them three has five. Three-star Goodreads reviews. Five-star Goodreads reviews. Uh, Steve, who gave it three stars, said, The third chapter in the shortest is the most self-referential and most annoying. Characters start recalling that they sort of remember that they've been here and done that, but can't pull it all together. Jones is knitting all of this together to say something, but I'm not sure what. Um <laughs> Gordon says, take every slasher horror convention you've ever seen on screen and deconstruct it on the page with characters who are somewhat aware that they are part of the genre. It is at once familiar and wholly original. It's sort of the literary equivalent of Scream. Um, 
And then Whitney, this is a five-star review. People who will like this book probably already know who they are from the description. A novelization of a screenplay based on an unauthorized novel, which is based on an article written from case notes from interviews at a mental facility. You said that. <laughs> um, add to this level of recursion 406 footnotes with sub-footnotes up to six layers deep. Some of you are drooling. Others of you are ready to run screaming. Both are valid responses. And I, I read many more that said, like, this is a book for people who really love horror movies, who want to kind of revel in talking about how those stories work. They like to think about like how a how a you know a horror movie that doesn't exist might happen. Like you might sit around with your friends if you a bunch of you like horror movies and like kind of try to brainstorm different ideas for movies or like play with different characters and this might be something that is up your alley there. And yeah. knowing that that is not your cup of tea, that's like not where you spend a lot of your time. Um, Andrew, I'm not surprised that there is stuff that like made you bounce off of it because you're not like here for the for the just the, the kills, the thrills and the kills, as it were. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's not a genre I gravitate toward, which is not the genre's fault. Sure. It's, it's like nobody's fault. It's just a thing. Do you <laughs> do, uh, just two questions for you? What bothers you more, like the legit scary parts of horror movies or the internal bad logic that makes horror movies work? Can it's you, both. It's, I don't know. <laughs> okay. Like I if I am thinking about it and and, and I notice myself doing it as I as I was reading this book, is it, if I'm thinking about it, I'm mad that that she went in there. Because obviously she shouldn't have gone in there. Yeah. Like he's behind the door. Like you shouldn't have gone in there. Um, Some movies but, want you to do that though, which is while, its own problem. <laughs> but while I'm actually watching it, it is mostly I just can't do blood and stuff. Yeah, I just sure. I literally can't. Every time I have to do blood work for anything, I have to immediately like eat a whole head sized chocolate chip cookie and a thing of orange juice <laughs> because otherwise I'm about ready to pass out. Like I just okay. can't. I can't look at the vial of my blood i can't think about having blood taken out of my body i just can't i don't do good you just don't want to be there no okay all right so what didn't you want to be with in this book let's be specific i want to so i want to talk about the the screenplay aspect of it and just like the the melding of novel and like movie direction that this this book is doing just really did not fully gel for me one one reason i like i like the goodreads reviews and i i don't i never want us to use it as like a crutch but it is good for validation mm. like often <laughs> sure. I, I'll, I'll often i will go to goodreads being like am i just stupid like am i literally too dumb to understand this book or am i reading it too fast or am i not being careful enough and usually i will go there and i will find somebody who's like no, that's this is this is exactly what you're feeling. I'm going to help you put it into words for your podcast, Andrew. Which then, which then is a service <laughs> that we provide to people listening to the show. Yeah, pay it forward, everybody. It's meta. It's getting real meta up in here. Uh huh. Um. So I mean, Jones does occasionally make this melding of of forms interesting. Like I, I told you about the. Uh, the like the monologue just juxtaposition yep. like occasionally everyone like one time you get a description of a needle drop which is specifically REM's losing my religion <laughs> <laughs> in a scene where a like religious character is is That's up great. against okay. some stuff um and, and 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 I think Jones occasionally does this I think you could you could you know, you could fully describe some sets and some cam- camera angles and music cues, and and there's like a potential for comedy with some like fourth wall breaking, depending on exactly what you're trying to do. But the majority of what you get in this book is mostly like Jones just telling you whose POV you are viewing events from. Okay. And in a movie, like we we already talked about, how this can be an interesting effect, especially if that POV is accompanied with some kind of like visual uh, visual overlay or something that, that tells you the viewer instantly, like whose mind you were supposed to be in while you're, while you're seeing that. Yeah. But in a book, you're sort of just adding extra words to describe how a close third person perspective 
just naturally works. <laughs> like you don't need to tell me I'm seeing events through this specific person's eyes because that's just what a book tells me. Yeah, that's... by describing people and the things that are happening to them, you know. <laughs> that feels like a yeah, that just feels like a catch 22 of this like meta text experiment which is like you might need to write that way for a successful film treatment. That doesn't necessarily make it a compelling read to Cuz it's a, not a film treatment, it's a fake film treatment. Yeah. It's a fake screenplay. And 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 looking back on my experience with House of Leaves, there's a bunch of stuff in that book that I didn't really care for and probably didn't even mention on the episode because I didn't really like click with it that is a lot of the there's a there's a couple characters that are just like man whatever and the book's kind of handling them oddly and in a similar tone um and yeah it doesn't make it might not make for interesting reading if it's act even though it might be useful writing yeah. For the for the screenwriter, perhaps, yeah. Well, and in in that genre of, of thing, I'll I'll say that in chapters two and three, where you read constantly about something being from the original or from the sequel. Oh, weird! That is that is how you, as a movie viewer, would see those things. Like if you're watching a Star War or whatever, you're like, oh man, yeah, that's the guy from the first one, and he's in there and he's doing stuff. If you're a reader, though, it's just sort of an obnoxious way to draw your attention, like to make sure that you are noticing what Jones has decided that he is doing, I guess. Yeah. I, I also kind of like if you wanted to make it a screenplay, I think it would have been more effective if he had like physically formatted it as a screenplay. Like I think it would have like that, even that, gone that's further a more, with it. Well, even just like like done like line breaks and and like font changes and things that that a screenplay format does like that that is a more minor th- and it's a stylistic thing I wonder but if i think um... it, i think it would have it might have made it easier to get into that mindset if i had had the like visual markers that helped to put you in that mindset in the first place does I that wonder, make sense well and you were you were reading i th- that makes a lot of sense i wonder if that's different if you had been reading I don't know what the physical copies of this book look. Yeah, like. we're gonna get into that a little bit in the footnotes yeah. section. But yeah, and I don't know if that is help if that is different or not. So, folks, should feel free to write us an email. I'll talk about the email address later. Whatever. Um, yeah. So that that's that's you want to talk main... about the footnotes? Real yeah. Quick? So, man, footnotes. <laughs> I. <laughs> They that was are the first thing that you were like, I don't know about this. To me, they're... so part of, part of that is just literally a like a logistical thing like do copious footnotes in a and and to be clear this isn't these are not footnotes these are end notes copious end notes in a an ebook are super annoying because mm-hmm. i mean kindle handles them okay but i'm reading most stuff in in nook these days and the apps just a little bit rougher around the edges and there are at any given time like at least two back buttons on the screen and one takes you back to where you were before and one takes you back to the library page where all your books are and if you accidentally hit the one that takes you to your library page and then you open the book back up it no longer gives you the second back button so you just have to kind of fumble your way back (laughs) to where you were in the book in the first place anyway um they are occasionally clever, and, and some Goodreads reviewers not incorrectly point out that they provide some needed levity, and the, if you've not read Infinite Jest, I guess the novelty of a footnote that has six Matryoshka footnotes inside it is interesting in yes, terms of every, like the form. Yes, every yeah. book with like metatextual footnotes may in fact be your first book with metatextual footnotes. <laughs> yeah. So maybe it is a fun experience for you. The, the thing that you told me was that like uh, these footnotes, correct me if I'm wrong, are not building more upon the fictional universe. They, 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 are, they are not. They are, there are 406 footnotes in this, as you just mentioned. And like... Often, not they're they are almost always just like describing the thing that he is making a reference to, and 
probably two thirds to three quarters of the time, depending on your pop culture literacy level, it is already obvious what thing he is making a reference to. And so the fun of the footnotes is sometimes that it will go into a, into a, um, uh, a di- is diversion the word a I'm digression, looking for? A digression. Digression. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It will, it will digress a bit and be like, oh, not to be confused with like this thing, this thing, this thing, which is sometimes fun. Sure. Um, but, Normally, it's just being like, yeah, this is a reference to the movie The Terminator um, because he said, I'll be back or whatever. Or this is a this is an obscure reference to a song that you've never heard of. And I'm not going to give you any other information about it. This happened to me often enough. And the references are obvious enough. And the 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 the, the logistical hurdles to doing this in an ebook sure. version are high enough that like halfway two-thirds of the way through the first book i just stopped checking every footnote like i i spot checked every once in a while and sometimes there was something that he did that i didn't immediately recognize that he footnoted and i just went to go and read the thing and it's it's it is definitely not a thing where the footnotes get are, are meant to be their own text and get like escalatingly more weird the way that they do in in infinite jest yeah this is this is the this is literally the least charitable way I can describe what is happening, but is it is what I've got. These footnotes are like if Ernest Klein, the author of Ready Player One, decided that he wanted to be David Foster Wallace. No, which is just it's just describing references. No, like most of the time it is just describing references. Let me. Oh God. Let me go back to. So let me just. Okay, Infinite Jest, yes, those footnotes also have an internal arc to them, which you described, which I think is helpful to making them feel justified. Well, and arguably you need to read them to have read the book. Yes, yes. Um, I'm reminded of Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, that kind of alt-magic history book I read like a year or so ago that also has footnotes, which makes it feel like the historical document that it's supposed to be, which Mm -hmm. is interesting. Um, I want to go back to the Dread Central review that I cited earlier. Um, it says, looking at the footnotes, one suddenly understands just what the hell is so funny about Michael Myers wearing a yellow Star Trek uniform or what's so funny about a costume geek affecting a British accent and saying that he got better. If you didn't get the reference, don't worry. The details are all in the footnotes. However, does the guide spoil the ride? The sad answer is that occasionally the very thing that makes this piece so much fun is what tends to distract from it. The footnotes do tend to yank the reader out of the action and in several places an obscure reference just couldn't be allowed to slide um you mentioned earlier that sometimes they provide like levity in a in a like particularly gory situation or something like that but if it all it does is like just pull you out or provide friction to your that's that's that is why i stopped checking is because they were not they were not super useful to me and they kept pulling me out of a story that you were already Early having on, trouble. I, with. I was already yeah. having trouble getting into. So yeah, that that was the, my main issue with that. Okay. Anything and else? Are, so we we already talked about the the like disorientation and the that was your next thing. Yeah. Like the confusingness. So th- those are my my gripes three, <laughs> and I have described them all. The like the the melding of novel and screenplay not really gelling all the time. The footnotes thing, and then the twists upon twists upon twists. Okay. But it sounds. But, but, it's it is I I recognize the value of this work but it is not really up my alley. Yeah, if sure. That makes sense. Like I'm I'm trying Andrew. to respect I'm trying to respect people who bounced off it and people who like kept thinking about it for long enough that they would recommend it to a book podcast. <laughs> well, book and it podcast sounds like really it sounds liked. like Jacob yeah. did both. Jacob was like Yeah, yeah, yeah. I dug what this book was up to and then it kind of you know, collapsed, and I found myself not liking it, which is like an interesting journey with a book where, like, you're on board with what it's doing right up until the moment where you're not. <laughs> that's just, it's like, that's just how, it's in the same way that, like, everything that you're looking for is in the last place you find it. Or what, what is the, what, what did I mean? I'm not sure what you... <laughs> When you're trying to find something, it's always in the last place you look. That's what I meant. There you go. Thank you. Um, well, let me real quick use a footnote for that as we that close out. I just I did some, you know, uh, slasher film reading 
on Wikipedia to prepare uh, just in case we needed stuff, which we mostly covered already. Um, but there's just two some some struck me funnies from the Wikipedia page for slasher films, which mm-hmm. I enjoyed. Mm-hmm. Uh, I am just in love with the journey of this one paragraph. <laughs> the appeal of watching people inflict violence upon each other dates back thousands of years to ancient Rome. Though fictionalized <laughs> accounts became marketable with late 19th century horror plays produced at the Grand Guignol, Maurice Tournier's The Lunatics used visceral violence to attract the Guignol's audience. Films like this eventually led to public outcry in the United States, eventually passing the Hayes Code in the 1930. The Hayes Code is one of the entertainment industry's earliest set of guidelines restricting sexuality and violence deemed unacceptable. Nobody passed the Hayes Code. It wasn't a law. <laughs> Just and I also and and the you know who invented taking pleasure in the misery of others was the Romans. Nobody nobody had done that before. No one had done it before. And there's nothing in between the ancient Romans and Grand Guignol, and then immediately the Hayes Code happens. It's just well because the, you got to get to the United States. You got to get to the most important part of history, which is the U.S. of A. Well, so check drill, baby, drill. Check this out. So then, a little later, you get there's a there's a subhead in that article that's just 1980, and it says the election of Ronald Reagan as the 40th president of the United States drew in a new age of conservatism that ushered concern of rising violence on film. The slasher film, at the height of its commercial power, also became the center of a political and cultural maelstrom. It's true that I think if if Ronald Reagan had not become president and they had not made a bunch of rubber masks of him, I don't think that the Purge movies would be possible. It's true. It's a political and cultural maelstrom. Mm-hmm. It's true. So yeah, I just in, I I uh, encourage people to go read about slasher films on the internet wherever they want to because there's treasures everywhere. <laughs> yeah, that, that that is my favorite thing about old wikipedia especially is the uh-huh. pseudo scholarly voice given to things that clearly did not deserve it or didn't deserve it in that way <laughs> like we we also love the the clearly written by the subject wikipedia genre yeah and, and Stephen Stephen Graham Jones by the way has a little bit I mean, going on yeah, yeah. I, I don't want to besmirch the work of his agent or whoever but <laughs> Uh, his his like biography and his his work stands apart from uh, a you know Wikipedia page that doesn't do him justice. Um, if folks sound like intrigued by him as an author, but maybe don't love like the idea of going into a horror film script, maybe they check out Fast Red Road. Maybe they check out. Lead Feather, maybe they check out this new book, The Only Good Indians. He has a whole bunch more and some short stories that you can read if maybe that's... I think I like horror short stories a little bit more than I like horror novels sometimes just because like it doesn't need to stand up to the full scrutiny of a, of a narrative arc. I mean, that, um, that's kind of what I liked about um, Friday Black when I read it. Yeah, you yeah. Can just kind of... And, and really any, any sort of sh- short form... Twilight Zone uh, fiction, yeah. yeah. Twi- Twilight Zone's a big, a big one. Just like have your idea and explore it for as long as it will bear, and then get out and don't worry about yep. stretching it. Yep. Yeah. Um, well, thanks for sticking with this book, Andrew, and telling me about it. I'm glad that you were able to get to the end. I'm always <laughs> always glad when I'm able to get to the end of a book. <laughs> Uh, if folks at home are fans of horror and slasher films and want to tell us about the ones that we should have mentioned on this podcast, you can send us an email at overduepod at gmail.com. You can hit us up on Twitter or Facebook.com slash overduepod. You can also check those feeds. We did a What You're Reading post uh, last week where people were listing a bunch of books that they are currently working through. Uh, shout out to Robin, Maya, Jeff, Mabel, Ben, Cody, Gabe, Stacy, Adrian, Doreen, Dina, Luciana, Liam, Kat, Kyle, and a lot more uh, for sharing their current book recommendations on those feeds. Andrew, if folks want to know more about the show, where do they go? Over to podcast.com. That's right. We got the .com. Up there we have links to Apple Podcasts, Google, and our RSS feed. We're also on Stitcher and Spotify. 
Uh, we have links to books that we have read and the ones that we are going to read. Those go to bookshop.org, which is a uh, site that sort of aggregates a lot of uh, independent booksellers from all over the place. So if you want to support your local indie bookseller in capital T, TT, these trying times, mm. uh, that is a way to do it. And we also get a small cut, which we appreciate. Uh, we have a Patreon page, patreon.com slash overdue pod. Get bonus episodes early, including this month's bonus episode, Lovecraft Country by Matt Ruff. Ruff, Ruff, which Craig is reading. Yep. Uh, that was a dog noise. I got it. And we're going to, I was making sure everybody else got it. I oh. knew you you got it, obviously. Thank you. Um, we Because we just have a natural chemistry. <laughs> Thanks to Nick Larandis, who composed our theme song. We'll put up a schedule for November at some point. I, there's something happening at the beginning of November that has really just, I think, blanked both of our brains. Oh, yeah. VoteSaveAmerica.com. Go, please, please vote. Go vote. And, please. like, tell three people I'm going to be my best canvasser self and tell you all to vote triple. Like, follow up with three people. Uh, make sure they have a voting plan. Thank them for voting if they did it by mail. Vote early, vote often. That's what I say. <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> uh, Andrew, get us the heck out of here. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. Until we talk to you next week, please try to be happy. That was a HeadGum Podcast.